Matthew chapter 5. A few years ago, um, ABC had a show called uh, Flash Forward. I don't know if you ever watched that show when it came out. And the whole premise of the show was based upon the whole world having a blackout for two minutes and 17 seconds. The whole world, everyone in the whole world blacked out for two minutes and 17 seconds. And during this blackout, everyone got a, a snapshot or flash forward into their lives six months later. They saw glimpses of what their life was going to be like, their marriage or their career, what it was going to look like six months later. For some, it was good. For others, it was not. A flash forward. Now, I want us this morning to have a flash forward. Now, we're not going to black out. I'm not going <laughs> to woo you so you can black out. But it's not going to be a flash forward of our life. But I want us to flash forward to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. To the end of it. If you were jailed with Jesus, listen to him preach 2,000 years ago. Flash forward to the end of it. You see, because at at the end of that sermon, there was a response. I believe there was a a response that Jesus wanted his disciples to have, the crowd to have, and us here to have at the village church. There is a response that the Sermon on the Mount was supposed to produce in those hearers and to produce in us. I want us to see the Sermon on the Mount in the context of how Jesus began his ministry and what happened when Jesus came down from the mountain after he preached the sermon. Because something happened when he came off the mountain. You see, he began his ministry in Matthew chapter 4 with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he began his ministry. Then you get to Matthew chapter 5. He goes up to the mountain. He preaches one of the greatest sermons he ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And when you flash forward to the end of chapter 7, you go into chapter 8, you read these words. When Jesus came down the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Think about that. A leper came to him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And later in the same chapter, Jesus come, he comes in contact with a Roman centurion who says to Jesus, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said to the centurion, Truly, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I hope you are beginning to connect the dots to see the response that Jesus wants us to have once we get done with this sermon, do you see it? Do you see it? The flash forward to the end of the sermon, it shows us we should have the response of repentance and the response of faith. 
That's what we should have. You see, in this whole sermon, Jesus does lay out for us kingdom principles that we all should live by. The Sermon on the Mount. He does do that. But he also preaches it to undo us. To show us how far short we follow those principles. It's not by accident that Matthew prays this thing about the leper after Jesus preached this sermon. Because if you hear this sermon and you don't see how dirty you are at the end of it, you're like, you don't get it. You should say, Jesus, make me clean. Because I'm not living up to those things. I'm not doing these things you just said. And then there's faith. Just say the word, Jesus, and I'll be healed. I'm trusting you to do in me what I can't do in myself. As I've been preaching to do this sermon series so far, are you being undone? Or are you writing down things you need to do more? Well, I need to perform better here. Your first response should be repentance, not a to-do list. He presents us all as mutually broken. In this sermon, whose only acceptable response is repentance and faith, which is opposite to that of the Pharisees, as we saw last week. They didn't respond this way. They did not see their leprosy. They did not see their need for faith because they had a false sense of righteousness. But this morning, this this morning, Jesus is going to undo them and he's going to undo us. And he does that first by what he talks about next in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says, you have, heard it, you, have heard, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Pray with me. This is your word, Father. This is your truth. This is what you have to say to your people. It's not something that that, that your ministers have made up. But it's your word to your beloved. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will speak through me. He will speak to me as well. For I need Jesus and the Savior too. I'm broken as well. So, Father, I pray that Christ will be glorified during our time today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In these verses here, Jesus begins to present everyone that he's speaking to as mutually broken. Everyone as guilty of breaking the law. And he does this by correcting the misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the Old Testament. During this time in the history of the church, the Old Testament was being misapplied by the religious leaders. They had a misinterpretation of what the intent of the law meant. And he begins by correcting that misunderstanding of the Sixth Commandment and giving its true meaning. You see, the Sixth Commandment 
states what? You shall not murder. And that is premeditated murder. And in the Old Testament, those found guilty of this crime, they faced the death penalty. You see, the, the, the sixth commandment protected the sanctity of life. You see, the Christians believe there is a sanctity of life. Every human life has value. And the sixth commandment protected that value. Why do you think there's a sanctity of life? Why? Because every human being is created in the image of God. That's why. And every human being has value. Every human life, unborn life, has value. Every human being has value. But here, according to Jesus, there is something wrong with how this law has been historically interpreted and applied. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not murder, and whoever murders should be liable to judgment. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the word of God said. You see, he's not correcting the Old Testament. He's, getting, he's correcting the misinterpretation of the Old Testament. This is what he's doing here. And based on what he says in verse 20 about, the, about having a righteousness that sees that of the scribes and Pharisees, you get an idea of what the issue is here. The issue is that the law was only being applied to the physical act of murder. The only the, the external act of murder was a sin. And a person who committed murder, they feel the weight of that. They feel it. But those of us who have never committed murder, physical murder, you feel no weight. You feel no guilt. You know, think about it. Think about your life. When you line your life side by side of someone who's sitting on death row for first degree murder, what do you think? Do you see yourself as that, as that person? No, you don't. You don't see yourself as that. You say mentally, I'm better. We all are guilty of that. Honestly, you feel self-justified. When you read a newspaper article and you see another story about someone been found guilty of murder, you feel self-justified. You, you mentally pat yourself on the back and say, man... I never murdered anyone, so I'm good. I'm safe. I'm guilt-free. And I'm better. If anyone is a sinner, if anyone is a guilty sinner and that deserves hell, it's the person that took another person's life. Right? That killer. Not me. I pay my tithes every week. I go to church. I'm a good citizen. I'm good. I'm safe. I'm righteous. More righteous than that person. Are we really? In Luke 18, Jesus told a parable. He told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He tells them two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed to God, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not. I'm pretty sure he had on his nice suit and his nice little tie. And I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, like con men or unjust or adulterers or even like this little tax collector over here. Lord Jesus, I thank you that I'm not a sinner is basically what he's praying. Lord, 
not only am I not like them, I'm better than them, Lord. I, I, I fast twice a week, twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get, not just my paycheck, but if I get extra, if I get a bonus, I pay tithes on that, even my income tax. Oh, Jesus, look how good I am. Not like this tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus tells them, I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself would be humble, but the one who humbles himself would be exalted. You see, if your view of sin is just external behavior, then you have a small view of it. Very small view of it. If it's just the bad things I do, you have a small view of it. Sin is a heart problem, a condition of our soul. And this is what Jesus is getting ready to show us. It's not just the external things we do. It's something else going on inside of us. So the person who feels self-justified because they haven't taken another person's life, Jesus says, slow your roll. Slow your roll. Slow down. Come back. Take another look at your life. Take another look at this verse. And that's why Jesus says, but I say. Not what those of old say, but I say. He's speaking with authority here. But I say. What does he say? But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Ouch. Really? Whoever insults his brother would be liable to counsel. Ouch. Again. Everyone who says fool would be liable to the hell of fire. Ouch, Jesus. Really? Really? Again, this is not Jesus correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting the misunderstanding of the Old Testament by the religious leaders. Their understanding, their interpretation, their application of the law was based upon the tradition of men. And Jesus said, there's something wrong with what you've been doing. What does he mean by these words? He means a person who commits murder was already in sin long before they did it. That's what he's saying. Long before they took that person's life, they were in sin long ago. Long ago. I was already here in their heart. There are other ways to murder someone than just by physical killing them. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And anger here is referring to the internal rage and hate you have for another person. You're so furious, you wish harm to come to that person. Yeah, they'd be good if they get in a car wreck. Yeah, that'd be pretty nice. I think I like that. That's what that means. That you take pleasure if something bad happened to them inside your soul. You'd be like, man, I like that. that's good. They got what they deserve. It's unrighteous anger. Anger, pride, vanity, hatred, malice, 
and revenge. Revenge. Evil thoughts toward another person. And in your heart, you murder them. And that makes you liable to judgment. Who's still guilt-free now? You still think you're better than the person on death row for first-degree murder. Now, Jesus says you're not. Next, he says, if you don't feel guilty yet, next he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hells of fire. Here Jesus is talking about verbal insults toward another person, a fellow believer, or anyone. And when you verbally insult another person, you verbally murder them. You do. The first insult here is referring to contempt towards a person's intelligence. And the word that is used here is empty-headed. It's like it's you calling a classmate, a co-worker, a relative, stupid, dumb, and idiot. That's what the word is implying. You insult their intelligence. You're an idiot. You're a dummy. You're worthless. You're good for nothing. You can't do anything right. My mother was right about you. Should have married so-and-so. This is what it's applying here. The second insult is referring to contempt towards a person's character. You insult the character. You dishonest so-and-so. You're a loser. You're always going to be a loser. You belittle them by calling them fool. And the intent here is not to build the other person up. But you use your tongue to wound them. To cut them. And Jesus is showing us and them that there are more ways to destroy a person than by taking that person's life. You do realize that, right? You can destroy a person in other ways other than taking that person's life. You can use your tongue to do it, or you can even do it in your heart. And when you engage in verbal insults like this, you break the sixth commandment. You're not upholding the sanctity of life. Why is that, Alex? Because verbal insults like this kills a person's dignity and it kills their self-worth. Think about it. If you verbally insult someone like this, you kill their dignity and their self-worth. It shows them that you, you don't think their dignity and self-worth has any value at all. At all. It's little value. So who's guilty of verbal murder? I am. I am. I'm guilty. A common way this is seen in our culture is through the use of social media like Facebook. And this is particularly high among t- in, in teens in high school when they use Facebook to bully other teens and other classmates. And, and hear this. If you are a cyber bully, you are a murderer. Know that about yourself. If you cyberbully other teens, other people, you are guilty of murder because you destroy that person's dignity and self-worth. You, you've heard stories in the newspaper about other teens committing suicide because of bullying on Facebook, posting things on their Facebook page that's hurtful. Or am I the only one who, who knows this? If you are a cyberbully, you're not a bully, you are a murderer. That's what you need to know about yourself, a murderer. You use things like Facebook as your weapon. One Christian says, Jesus' whole purpose here is to show us 
Everything that is included in this commandment, thou shalt not kill. Killing does not mean destroying the physical life. It means still trying to destroy the spirit and the soul as well. Destroying the person in any shape or form is guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. Not just murder, but when you try to destroy the soul and spirit by any shape and form. So the point is, we're all guilty. And Jesus is saying to us, take a second look at your life. Have you ever been angry and insulted a person like this? If so, then my hands, my hands are not clean. I'm guilty. I'm not innocent. I'm broken. Just like the person on death row. That's Alex. I'm broken. And Jesus is turning up the heat with these words here because God's standard is much higher than we realize. And what you got to see is that he doesn't lower his standard. Through Christ, he brings us up to the standard. Realize that. That's the gospel. The gospel doesn't mean he lowers his standard. The gospel means he brings you up to the standard in Christ. That's what the blood is for. Anger and insults makes us just as liable to judgment. And so if you're in this crowd right now, do you feel like Jesus is beating you up with these words? Do you feel like I'm beating you up this morning? Listen, I'm, this applies to me as well. Because I'm, I'm, I need Jesus too. I need, I'm broken as well. We've got to realize that the sixth commandment does not apply to our self-righteousness. It has to die. The sixth commandment does not apply to our self-righteousness. It has to die. It has to die. And with these words, that's what Jesus is doing. Showing us why the righteousness of like the Pharisees does not work. Because they're not righteous. And so with these words, Jesus is putting a knife in the back of our self-righteousness and it hurts. It hurts. Put a knife in the back of our sense of superiority and it hurts. Put a knife in the back of our sense of being better than other people and it hurts every time he does it. Why does he do it? To show us that we all are broken. Before the throne of God. Who's broken? I'm broken. Who has issues? We all have issues. And when you forget it, it's an issue. You got it. God's people are broken people. And people who know their brokenness, we see our sin differently. We see it differently. We see it as a heart problem, not a behavior problem. And you will begin to run away from your attempts to use obedience alone to loosen sin's grip on your life. Obedience alone doesn't do it. You'll run away from trying to have a righteousness like the Pharisees that Jesus talks about in verse 20. Instead, broken people will be like the leper, sprinting to Jesus when he comes down the mountain and say, Jesus, if you will, make me clean. Make me clean. Repentance. And like the centurion guard, Jesus just say the word. You ain't even got to come to my house. Just say the word and I know it'll be, uh, he'll be healed. That's faith. Trusting and depending upon Jesus as well. Broken people live by repentance. 
Broken people live by faith. Broken people live by practicing reconciliation. That is what he says in the next couple of verses here. Verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come to terms quickly. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. At least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. These two illustrations that Jesus gives us, what's the point of them? He points to us that those who are right with God in Christ, it shows itself in how we relate to other people. It shows itself in our relationships with other people. If I've been reconciled to God, then that should work itself out in my relationships with my wife, with my kids, with you guys, and my neighbors. There's a connection. It's because the reality is that we're all, we all are guilty of sinning against one another, right? You sin against people and people sin against you. You do realize that, right, every day. And so Jesus showing us reconciliation is necessary in our personal relationships. That we have to practice it. You're either going to engage in verbal insults or you're going to engage in reconciliation. Which one is going to be? Which one is it going to be? He's saying you must deal with the animosity in your relationships. Reconciliation is necessary. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then then come and offer your gift to God. There is an importance that Jesus places upon this. Think about this. If all of us are mutually broken, and we are, what does that reveal about everything in your life? What does it reveal about your marriage? What does it reveal about your family, your career, everything? If you are broken, what else is broken in your life? Everything. Every relationship you got, every relationship you're going to have is all broken. And so Jesus is saying, knowing that means you should engage in reconciliation. Because you're going to have broken relationships in this life. Everything is broken. And he wants us to engage in the reconciliation in our broken relationships. But there's a danger for us in this. And one pastor says the danger is us trying to atone for moral, for, for moral failures by balancing good and evil. Doing good Christian things to try to outweigh the bad things that we do. And we can't atone for moral failures by trying to outweigh good and bad. It does not erase the responsibility to go and be reconciled. If a husband verbally insults his wife, murders her, will sending her flowers get him back into her good graces? Think about it. If he does to her the things we've been talking about, saying hurtful things to her, will sending her flowers get her get him back into her good graces? What about doing the laundry or doing the dishes? or even cooking the dinner the next night, will all those things alone get your husband back into your good graces? I don't think so. Because the husband is only doing those good things to try to outbalance the evil thing he just did to you. And Jesus says, stop. Don't do that. Husband, go to your wife and tell your wife 
when I said that, I hurt you, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. That's what he wants you to do. Not trying to do good things to try to erase the bad that you just done. Practice reconciliation. And you got to communicate to practice that. Communicate to practice that. So reconciliation is necessary and it's urgent. The second illustration here about um, your accuser taking you to court, Jesus showing that reconciliation, going too fast. Reconciliation is urgent, that it should not be delayed. You should not put it off. If you know someone has something against you, deal with it. Don't just say it'll pass over. Don't just say, well, I just want to keep the peace. I don't want to bring it up. Jesus says, go deal with it. Another Christian author says, animosity is a time bomb. You don't know when it's going to go off, but it will. If you know someone has something against you, don't sweep it under the rug. Eventually, it's going to go off and deal with it. Seeking to reconcile with another person who sinned against you, sometimes it can save the relationship. You can still be friends. And sometimes it won't. But the point is, you want to get forgiveness. You want the person to forgive you. And if you're the guilty party, go be reconciled. But you can't make the person forgive you. You can't do that. You've done your job when you went to the person to try to make it right. It's the other person's responsibility to forgive you. It may take time, but it's their responsibility in time to forgive you. And like I said, the closer the relationship, sometimes the harder it is to forgive. That's just the way it is. But if the person loves you, they will forgive you. And hopefully the relationship will come back to where it needs to be. The rules for us here at the Village Church about reconciliation, you should already, you should already, it should be written in your mind by now. Short accounts, short accounts, short accounts, short accounts. Always keep the lines of communication open. Always. Communication, communication, Communication. If you forget it, communication, communication, communication. If you have an issue with me, tell me. Don't tell Richard. Tell Alex. And I'll tell you. That's how we keep short accounts. We deal with the stuff that comes up between us. A few weeks ago, the Lord convicted me on this verbal insult stuff, and particularly stuff inside my heart. You know, for a while now, I've made a misjudgment of two folks that that I've met in this community. I thought things about them that was not true. And this one particular neighbor I thought was mean. I thought he he was prejudiced. I thought he was racist. And so in my mind, I already had this picture of who he was. He said, you know what? I'm going to stay away from that person. But you know what? I was wrong. That neighbor, same neighbor, came over to our church a few weeks ago and came and, and and, and came over to tell us something about the new property that we got. That, hey, I think it's not secure enough. There's a gate open. People may be walking through the property, maybe even in the house. Some. So he came over and, and got me and took me over to the property and showed me what the problem was. And you know what? Nicest guy I've met in the neighborhood. And you know, as he was talking, I felt this small in my soul. Because I know what? I have crucified this guy for being something that he's absolutely not. So when he left, I had to go do business with Jesus. Jesus, once again, I made a huge misjudgment of character. 
I made an assumption about a guy that was totally wrong. Please forgive me. Continue to show me my sin. Show me how much I just make assumptions about people that are not true. And so, am I guilty of it? You have a guilty pastor, is the point. A guilty of everything that you do, I do as well. You know, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, I love it. You know why I love it? Because it levels the playing field for everybody. It does not discriminate. It doesn't show favoritism. It says you are messed up. It steps on all of our toes equally. If your toes are not stepped on by the gospel, then you don't understand the gospel. Your toes should hurt right now. Like mine. It presents us both. All of us here is mutually broken before a holy, awesome God. But that same gospel, that same gospel, it takes us beyond our brokenness as well. You realize that, right? It shows our brokenness and it takes us beyond our brokenness. Where mutually broken people can find hope, freedom, restoration, forgiveness, and peace. How? Through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. The table here, this here, what we're about to partake of, reminds us of that one thing. Communion is a visible proclamation of that gospel that shows brokenness and takes us beyond our brokenness. Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And so this table was instituted by him. It's his, it's his table, not my table. Not the village church's table. And guess what? It's open to all of his sons and daughters. All of you. If you know Christ and saving faith. If you trust in him for his, your salvation. If you're willing to forsake your sins. If you are members of a congregation that proclaim the gospel. Guess what? This table is for you. For you. But there's a warning given to us by the Apostle Paul. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drink of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, let us examine ourselves and so eat and drink of this cup. I want us to take a few moments to examine ourselves after the Holy Spirit to reveal to us in my receiving the, ta- the table in a worthy manner. So let's have a couple moments to examine ourselves. Father, I thank you for this table, for what it represents. It represents your death, the cross. And I pray, Spirit, that you you are, you are, live in all of us who are believers. And so reveal to us where we are. Reveal to us our need. And use this time to encourage us in our walks. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hear the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus Christ. On the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he gave thanks to it. He broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, 
This is my body. This is the cup of the new covenant. My blood, which is shed for the many, for many sins. Drink from it, all of you. It was the Lord's, our sin for which the Lord came to die. So again, let's talk to the Lord now and have a time of silent confession. <laughs> 